Get on Team Shaq with WinBet. We're playing parlays, boosting odds, and laying the wildest prop bets. Don't miss another game. Download the WinBet sports betting app today. Sign up today and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 first-time wager on a straight bet or parlay. That's $200 that you can use for all the upcoming basketball action, including the men's basketball tournament. If you bet at least $500 during the first and second round of the tournament, you can get a trip to the five-star rated Win Las Vegas. Offer subject to change, terms, and conditions at winbet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in a state where playthrough winbet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the That's So Mets podcast. This is episode number 20. I'm your host, Connor Rogers. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, Joe DeMeo. And we're excited as the Mets officially have that GM they've been looking for what feels like forever. Jared Porter has his press conference earlier in the week. We have some takeaways from that. A couple middle-of-the-pack free agents. Uh, apparently, their markets are moving, and it feels like the Mets are attached to everyone. So we'll comment and, and look into some of those. And we're going to answer a ton of your questions this week. feel like it's a good time to do that because probably after this week or two weeks from now, uh, things are really, really going to pick up on the MLB offseason. You're going to see some of the big free agents maybe finally come off the board. There will be more trades. Uh, the mid-tier free agents absolutely are in talks across the board. So, Joe, we have some news. We have a GM, which is very, very nice. We have a catcher. That's officially official. How are we? How are we feeling? How are we doing? We're feeling good. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited that they finally filled that GM spot. It feels like it's something that I've been complaining about either on here or on Twitter for a month that, you know, let's go. Got to get going. And, you know, they finally did. And by all accounts, it seems like they made a choice that is resoundingly positive across the landscape. I don't think I've read anything that's a, that is anything other than beyond glowing on Jared Porter. Uh, just the kind of guy he is, the kind of leader he is, and, and what he's going to bring to the table. So I think it's a, it's an exciting time to be a Mets fan. Uh, like you said, James McCann's deal was finalized, so they have a catcher in in tow. And now that Jared Porter's here, they can start to hopefully build towards you know that sustained success that they're looking for. I, I think so as well. I think what you have to like about Porter, you know, listening to him speak, reading about him. Uh, a lot of members in the national baseball media and local media, you know, praising him to hire where he comes from. Even Dan Heron tweeting that, hey, the Mets got this one right. Heron obviously having a relationship and, and uh, you know, being side by side with Porter before in an organization. So I think when you look at this, he's a baseball guy, right? This is not, you know, and this is probably the last time we'll we'll talk about Brody Van Wagenen. But when Brody was hired and that search had legitimate baseball people involved in it, baseball candidates, with Brody, you always sat there and you said, hey, you know, this guy's an agent and he wants to be a GM. And of course, there are positives that, you know, come through with that. Those being that he has negotiating experience, those meaning that he has contacts in free agency, a lot of different things along those lines. But when you look at it from Brody, did he have scouting experience? Uh, did he know how to manage and hire for a front office? A lot of things across, you know, there were question marks across the board. I think as we look at Porter, Joe, there's just not, you don't have the fear of the unknowns because he's been, he's been around successful organizations. You know, let's make that clear. He, he's somebody that has been in Boston for over a decade. He was in Chicago and he did a lot of good things in Arizona. And now he's going to a situation with the Mets where, the money's going to be there, right? He's been in pro scouting for a very long time, and I think now that the Mets are a team that is going to spend quite frequently, I think we can pencil in the Mets as a team that will spend every offseason. Sure, they might not hand out a $100 million contract every offseason, but they are going to go into the free agent market and be active to fill their holes. You need somebody that understands a couple of things. Players declining. Players that are on the rise that people might not see, that market value, uh, filling out multiple spots, not just signing a star and saying being a top-heavy team. And I think Porter is somebody that 
you know, as he sits there with three World Series rings on his hand, I think a lot of people don't, you know, might forget that. He's understood what it takes all the way from the bottom to the top. And what I mean by that is scouting, drafting, developing players in A ball, double A ball, triple A ball, when to bring them up and how to fill holes on the major league roster in areas that maybe you missed or areas that, quite frankly, maybe you haven't had the opportunity uh, to to fill. So I think with Porter, we're obviously optimistic. He's somebody that was in Joe's list of six. If you go back and listen many episodes ago, before he had ever been connected to the Mets, this was somebody that Joe was very excited about because of all of his success over his career. Now he's getting a chance, and I think most importantly, he's going to a place that is a little foreign, right? Everybody talks about him following Theo Epstein and You know, this is a bit of a leap, and so is Arizona. This is a bit of a leap for him, but he's willing to come here because the infrastructure in place with the right owner, the right guy at the top of the organization in Sandy Alderson, are promising. And I think that is what makes it all so exciting. Absolutely. Very, very well said. But, like, Jared Porter, what excites me is, like you said, it's a guy, he started as an intern at the Cape Cod League. So he started at the bottom of the bottom and worked his way up he worked hard he got in with the right organization it's to the point where the, he had the absolute trust of Theo Epstein and you know he he has a history of finding those under the radar players uh he he signed Daniel Nava out of the independent league for one dollar and Daniel Nava had some a couple of really nice years for the Boston Red Sox and when they were trading, I believe it was Andrew Miller, they were shopping him around, and they had the Red Sox had a deal set up. Uh, Bill James actually wrote about this. Uh, they had a deal set up with Baltimore that would have brought them back a couple pro, uh, prospect arms that they, they didn't name, but they were putting up good statistics. And Jared stepped in, and this was all within like a half hour before the trade deadline, and was like, no, 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 that we don't want those guys. They're you know, a year too old for their league. That's why they're performing at that level. We want this guy. And this was a guy that had like a 4.3 ERA in double A. And he's like, we want this guy because he's performing adequately while being young for the league. And that guy was Eduardo Rodriguez, who is now a stalwart in the Boston rotation. So he obviously has an eye for talent. And if you read quotes from everyone, from Theo Epstein to Ben Charrington, Jed Hoyer, you know, they praise his player evaluation skills, his aggressiveness in pursuing these things. And now you take a guy that's aggressively pursuing those middle market si- signings and trades. Like he identified Zach Gallen as a guy that was going to break out and he's been tremendous for Arizona. So all in all, this is a great talent evaluator and even more importantly than on the field, off off the field, in the background, he is not only one of the most respected executives out there, he's so well-liked, like Sandy said. And being liked is important in this business, which is going to take him you know, very far. And I think the Mets hired a guy that I can look at and go, you know, for a couple of years under Sandy, this is a guy that if they so choose in the future to have a president of baseball operations, which... I can't harp enough that that doesn't matter, and it's not really that you know, common across the game. Less than half the teams in baseball even have one, so it's not like the Mets are odd for not having one. But he's the type of guy that I think, under Sandy's watch and learning some things, because there, there are some little things that you have to do as a general manager that you, know, you don't do as an assistant or someone in pro scouting or just baseball operations where your job is really solely focused. You're now certainly at a, at a much broader uh, landscape of what you have to do. So I think Porter can be a guy that we can look ahead to, and he could be a guy that can lead the Mets for years and years to come. I think that's the most important thing, right, is is finding someone that you think can do this for the long term where he's – you know, this is the problem going back to Brody is that it always felt like, and there's always been one big problem in a lot of recent Mets front office structures. Like with Sandy, 
it was that they didn't spend. And that's not his fault, right? And I, I was guilty of this as a fan at the time. I was very frustrated when Sandy would make comments about free agency, but Sandy was just falling on the sword for the Wilpons at the time. The bottom line was, uh, it was tough for them to even go out and acquire Ioannis Cespedes that year, and that got them to a World Series. So, that was Sandy knew how to scout, how to draft, how to develop, but at the end of the day, the Mets, and they've made it to a World Series, okay? Like, that's a tremendous accomplishment with what they were working with at the time. The Mets did not adequately spend in the market. Now, with Brody, it never felt like there was a long-term plan. It felt like him and the Wilpons were in this two-year window where they were sprinting, and they never stopped to take a breath. And in doing that, you traded away a top prospect in Jared Kalanick in a deal that was horrendous. You took on salary that... I know Cano, I hate, it's funny to say this, but miraculously got suspended this year. So that salary is off the books this year. Guess what? It's coming back the next two years after that. This is horrible moves that are damaging long-term, all for a sacrifice of a short-term that didn't work out. With Porter, you're trying to wipe away, and Cohen, most importantly, now you're wiping away those lingering problems that have existed for a long time where they can spend money. He's not, and I know everybody made a big stink about Cohen saying, I want to win a World Series in three to five years. I don't even know why people made a stink. The goal is to win. And the Mets are a good baseball team right now that are going to be a lot better a month from now. So you should have those aspirations. But this is somebody that can now come in. He's seen in at multiple places and put in an infrastructure that is set up, you know, in that three, four, five-year kind of window, and really, it should never stop. Rebuilding happens in sports. It's just the way things go. But there is a, a chance in baseball, a way in baseball, to consistently supplement your system and, and have it be a long-term thing. And I think that's the most important thing about Porter coming in here, a younger guy, an energized guy that has the required resume and experience and and people relations, quite frankly, succeed here and he emphasized which i thought was really important is that he emphasized the long term here so he talked about needing to upgrade player development he talked about needing to upgrade research and development or analytics if you prefer that term and those are obviously things that we have talked about and everyone knows that the mets certainly need a lot of work there but he talked about sustainable success. So all, all the stuff that we've been talking about is kind of what Jared Porter echoed. So it's pretty exciting that they have a guy in place that even though, yes, obviously they want to win today. There's no question about it. The, Met, the Mets are not in a rebuild. This is a talented team with a talented core. And they have the opportunity, if the right moves are made this offseason, which so far I think they're off to a, a, a pretty good start, but if they make the right moves, there's no reason the Mets can't be a legitimate contender in 2021. And I think, but he's keeping that focus on sustainability, long-term, drafting, developing. He even mentioned working with the scouting department like Tommy Tanis. And I, he said almost everything that I, I wanted to hear. And I think one thing that Sandy brought up that I thought was very interesting is that Jared expressed in the interview process how important it was for them to make significant additions to the front office staff. And the hope is those great relationships that he has across the game should lead to the Mets be able to bring in some very high quality baseball people to help kind of build his cabinet. You know, there's rumors about JP Ricciardi returning and, and that may ultimately end up happening. But to me, that's a Sandy hire. I don't want Sandy hires. I don't want Sandy building a cabinet. You're you're trying to build Jared Porter's cabinet going forward. If they so to me, I want Jared Porter to tell him who he wants. Are there people with the Red Sox that he wants to bring over? Are there people with the Cubs that he wants to bring over? Are there people with the Diamondbacks that he wants to bring over? And you know, so I I want Jared Porter to have the opportunity to build his own staff and cabinet. And one point that I saw, uh, Keith Law wrote about it in his article for The Athletic where he he trashed on James McCann. Let's just be very clear. He did not like that move whatsoever. But he was very complimentary of Jared Porter and said one thing that Jared Porter played a big role in in Chicago and Arizona was 
taking a research and development department or analytics department that was kind of bare bones, similar to the Mets, and built them into, you know, a much bigger factor. So obviously Theo Epstein was involved in Chicago and Mike Hazen was involved in Arizona, who are above him. But Jared Porter was a, even though he was the assistant GM or the director of pro scouting, Jared Porter was an incredibly valued decision maker in both of those locations. So if he made recommendations, Theo Epstein listened, Mike Hazen listened, and Mike Hazen was with him in Boston. So obviously they have that past history. But yeah, no, I I couldn't be happier with the way Jared Porter came off in the press conference. He seemed comfortable. I mean, there were some generic, you know, GM answers, which is also part of the job, right? I mean, as much as you want to hear them be 100% truthful and say, yeah, we're going for George Springer, like, that's not what GMs say publicly. That's just, that's the way of the beast. So he looked comfortable, knew how to answer questions, um, didn't shy away from the three to five year, not mandate, but hope for Steve Cohen. He said, you know, I take that on as a challenge and I embrace it. And the Mets need someone going forward that not only wants to win, but embraces the pressure to do so. Yeah, I, I mean, I love reading Keith Law's work, and I did read that nugget on McCann. I thought it was a little harsh, and, you know, for people that, um, you know, that might alarm them. I mean, I'm pretty sure Keith Law also said Jeff McNeil wouldn't be a, a real major leaguer. So, I, you know, we'll see. That's why they play the games. People are wrong a lot. I'm, I'm wrong a lot. Everyone's wrong a lot. So I, I thought it was a little harsh. Um, I think people improve over time. I think especially in the major leagues, a lot of guys break out at – you know, and Joe, you would know this better than me, but I think a lot of guys do figure it out at 29 or 30 years old. Uh, unlike football and basketball and hockey, you know, I, I think it's a little bit different where, sure, did the Mets overpay? Absolutely. Uh, do I think he can be an adequate starter at a position that they don't want to spend 20 plus million dollars a year on? Uh, I do. Yeah, I mean, I understand what Keith said. It was harsh and his statistics were valid. There's no question about it. McCann has had some platoon splits issues in his career. And prior to moving to Chicago, he wasn't a really good catcher defensively. And that's part of the reason why he was non-tendered. But like you said, people can improve. And we, we even said this on this on this podcast that it's a high-risk move. There is a distinct possibility that we look at this McCann deal and go, oh, can't believe they did that in a couple years. But they it, it was the hand they were dealt in a sense where they're not going to sit and wait on Real Muto and then basically be bent over a barrel and have to give him whatever they had to do to get a deal done. They said, we like McCann. He has made significant strides on both sides of the ball the last two years. So it's not just 2020. The last two years, he's made significant strides on both sides of the ball. So I think the trajectory is pointing upward on McCann. But there's some risk, and, you know, if it doesn't work out, he didn't give him $25 million a year for it not to work out. $10 million a year is a, li a little more, um, you know, you could deal with it a little bit. But, yeah, I thought Keith was a little harsh, but, you know, there, there's risk. They might have overpaid a little bit, but they needed a quality catcher, and he was, without question, the second best option available on the market. And they locked him in so that way they can move on to other needs and— if they fail to sign a George Springer or a Trevor Bauer or accomplish a trade for a Nolan Arenado or Francisco Lindor, then you, I think you have the right to be more upset about the James McCann move because then it's like, what are we doing here? That's just a generic you know, middle-of-the-road offseason where, say, they sign like Jackie Bradley Jr. and Jake Odorizzi and you know whatever and just kind of do a bunch of like mid-level signings. One of the problems in the last regime was it was – Sole free agency was solely based on mid-level signings, which don't have a high rate of outperforming value. More often than not, you're getting less value. So if you're pursuing middle-of-the-range players, you're going to get, at best, middle-of-the-range results. But the Mets can... The Mets would be more than fine if James McCann was a middle-of-the-road catcher, you know, it's slightly above average, with the other things that I believe they're going to be doing. I don't think it. I don't think it's that big of a deal, uh, but you know, we'll we'll see how it works out. Absolutely. And speaking of seeing how it works out, 
you know, there is some buzz around the mid-tier of this free agent market, right? It seems like, and it's funny, maybe things will change by the time this show gets out, but it's gotten real quiet on Real Muto. And obviously the Mets are out on that one, and the Mets being out on that one does not help him. I think that one's going to tra- – I think that one actually drags out for, I would bet, three to five weeks, Joe. I really would. Now, Springer, uh, things have gotten quiet on. LeMahieu, it seems like him and the Yankees are very far apart. It's well known he wants to return there. Uh, I. It's going to be interesting to see if someone swoops in. So while all that has gone a little bit dull – you have names like Marcus Simeon, you know, an infielder that has played shortstop, but there's been rumors he could play third wherever he signs. And, and Jake Odorizzi, their market's apparently starting to move up a little bit. And this is going to happen with every free agent. And I'll also include Liam Hendricks. This is going to happen with every free agent that's a, a mid-tier guy, an upper-tier guy. The Mets are going to be connected to them. It helps their market. It helps their value and all of those things. But I do think the Mets are also casting a wide net here. Now, I look at this, and I sit there and go, I would like to get somebody like Jake Odorizzi signed. And when I say somebody like him, I mean him, uh, Tanaka falls into that bucket for me. Basically, someone that I think you can go into the year with as your number three starter. And there's going to be risk. There isn't every single free agent signing, but we feel good about DeGrom as the ace. We feel good about Stroman behind him and you know, eventually Cindergard. Now, is it a perfect world that Stroman's the two or a Cindergard coming back from Tommy John will be the two on limited innings? No, but it's it's the hand you're dealt. So you'd like to really pencil in one of these guys and start to fill out this rotation. Joe, what do you make of these rumblings that the Mets are connected to basically everyone? And is there anybody in this mid-tier market? I know you've been very vocal that Hendricks, you know, you're not going to buy a bullpen. That one doesn't make a ton of sense to either of us. Um, but is there anybody that, that interests you in this mid-tier market that you think the Mets should, should try to get done before the holiday? So it, it's interesting. So a guy like Simeon, I brought him up last week on the podcast. I, I think he's an intriguing option because I, I, I really feel like J.D. Davis is kind of a square peg in a round hole here. He doesn't exactly have a position um, he could kind of play a little bit of third. He could kind of play a little bit of left. And, you know, whether we have the DH or not certainly is going to be a factor. But I wonder if the Mets have intentions to use J.D. Davis to acquire some starting pitching or maybe an elite reliever, like if a Josh Hader is available and the Mets choose that, you know, they want to splurge on bullpen and take that risk again going the trade route and have Hader and Diaz and May and Lugo you know, that could be pretty interesting too. But if they get rid of JD, they certainly need to fill third base. And Simeon is a guy that by all accounts, you know, if he wants to play shortstop, there's teams that are going to line up and be willing to let him play shortstop. So it's not like he has to move off of the position, but if he's open to it, I'm open to talking to him and saying, "Eh, you know, let, what can we, can we do a two year deal to get you at third base? That would be something that would interest me. Uh, Odorizzi, to me, I think is a good fit for the rotation. Obviously, he has the Jeremy Hefner connection. Uh, like you said, he uh, he would fit in fine as the number three or even you know maybe number four or whatever. But somewhere in the middle of the rotation, I think he'd fit in perfectly fine there. And and this year he just had a couple you know little fluky injuries. I mean, he got hit in the chest by a comebacker, which put him out for a little bit. And then he had a blister, and it was a 60-game season, so you have those two little things, and that's it. In a full season, you know, he would have put up 130 innings, 140 innings at least. So he's an he's an interesting guy. I'm a big fan of Tanaka. So if, he's, if his elbow checks out and all that good stuff, you know, he's a guy that I think makes a ton of sense to pursue uh, in free agency. But with those markets moving... I think that this is kind of a question for... I, I want to throw a question your way, Connor, because you're always asking me questions. I'm going to throw you one. Do you want Do you want them to act right now on these things? Or do you want to wait out some of this market? Because it, it almost feels like the Mets are setting the market in so many places. They set the catching market. They set the reliever market. Do you want, do you want the Mets to be a team that's setting the market at all these positions? So... I absolutely would on Springer, right? I would, if the Mets came out of the gate 
and said, hey, we're giving Springer five for 140. And I know that number is high. But if, if you're getting these deals done now, you're going to overpay because if, if you don't overpay the guys, they're going to sit and wait it out because they quite simply don't have to sign now and they just keep bidding these teams against each other that, that miss on their other options. So I look at this and go, there's certain areas where I would like to move the market, Joe. And, and I do appreciate you asking my input. I do throw 9 million things at you and I don't just do it on the show. Uh, I text Joe nonstop and ask him questions as well. So here's where I would. Like, would I do it for a Simeon or a Hendricks? N- no, I wouldn't. Odorizzi is interesting. I I will say it like this. The one middle of the rotation guy I would move the market for right now. Do you have to do it for – because they need two, and I think everybody's well aware of that. I've been very vocal on this show. I'm not breaking the bank for Trevor Bauer. I'm not doing it. I don't I don't want to pay Trevor Bauer. I'm I don't buy that he's going to sign a short-term deal number 1. If that was the case then whatever, I don't care. I think he's going to get a 4 to 5 year deal at mega money. Um you know, I have my reasons why. I've been pretty honest about that. I would rather and, and here's another thing and we're going to get to this during the questions. You you can't if you're the Mets, I've been trying to explain this to, to some of my friends too. Sure, Cohen has unlimited money, essentially, right? But like Joe always says, they're probably not going to break the luxury tax this year. They don't need to. And Cano's money is going to come back on next year where I don't think you're going into this market and adding like three plus million guys. That's just, that's just not realistic. And number two, it's not really a good way to function, to be honest with you. So would I go out and pay the big bucks right now to this day for George Springer? Absolutely. They have a hole in center field. He's a superstar. I think he's the safest of all the the top free agents because I think he will age the best. I think he will move to a corner position and play upside defense, you know, above average defense in a couple of years, just fine. I I think he will hit for probably four out of five years of that contract at a pretty high level. I think you like the the character of the person and that he, it all accounts. Sounds like he wants to come to the Northeast. So Springer to me is a seamless fit. Now, I once again, my other thing with it is I think you do need to get a middle-of-the-rotation guy because you can't stand on your hands with this. The Mets need pitching so badly. And I am not—and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we can laugh at me on this show. I don't think the Mets are in on Trevor Bauer like a lot of people think. I really don't. I think the Mets are sitting there. They want to get Springer done, and then they're going to try to move in and swoop in and own middle-tier market. And those guys, to me, big Tanaka fan like you. I think Tanaka, he's used to New York. By now, probably a guy that isn't looking to go too far. You know, I heard Jeff Passan say, he's like, I don't think he goes back to the Yankees no matter what, which is very intriguing to me. The elbow, I'm not a doctor. So, you know, if the elbow checks out, two-year deal, 220, 222, all in on that. I would look at James Paxton. Obviously, I would look at Odorizzi. Those are three guys to me that I'd like to get one of them in the fold right now. So you sit there and go, okay, let's lay our chips out. We know we want Springer. We got the catcher already done. Now we look at our rotation. We know what Jacob DeGrom is. We think we know what Marcus Stroman is. He, he's a high, pretty high upside middle of the rotation kind of guy, that two or three kind of guy. We know Cindergaard's going to be back. We feel pretty good what we saw out of our rookie pitcher last year in David Peterson. So you can get one of those middle-of-the-tier guys for the three or four spot, and you know you're going to sign another one eventually when the market settles. That would make me feel good, not just as a Mets fan, but if I was sitting in the Jared Porter seat knowing what moves need to be made. Yeah, I mean, I I think... With the starting pitching, I think I'm willing to be a little more patient. Um, if the Odorizzi market starts pricing itself out, I, I don't need the Mets to be overpaying for every single player. You know, I I think it's okay. McCann was a dire need, and there really wasn't alternatives. So if Odorizzi's market gets big, then you know let him go somewhere else. And like you, I, I think Tanaka. I don't think Tanaka is a guy that's going to be signing particularly soon. So I think that's something that you can wait on a little bit. And in regards to the J.D. Davis trade, I wonder if you see the Mets, you know, I see all of you going to my Twitter mentions like J.D. Davis and what for you, Darvish, or J.D. Davis and what for, you know, this star player. Like, what if they trade J.D. Davis in a deal to get them 
you know, maybe they're the version of Zach Gallen that Jared Porter got from with Arizona. You know, a younger, controllable arm because the Mets need pitching that's going to be here a while. You know, they, they don't have minor league arms that are on the verge of coming up. So, and Syndergaard and Stroman are both on one-year deals at this point. I, I have to imagine they would aim to keep one of them at least. But still, you know, the rotation going forward, who knows? And I think J.D. Davis is a prime trade candidate. And frankly, you know, you could throw Ahmed Rosario on that list too. Uh, if they feel really good about Andres Jimenez, you know, you could deal off Ahmed Rosario for a controllable starting pitcher. But the Mets definitely need at least one starting pitcher, if not two, to go in the rotation right now. And then they signed a Jared Eikhoff today. They need to fill up on some minor league deals for these guys that have past big league experience to go to AAA Syracuse and be available in the case of injury. Because injuries are going to happen, even if it's minor. You know, if someone's, you know, DeGrom might crack a fingernail and miss a week and a half. And you, that means you need to make up a couple starts. And that's what you need that AAA depth for. So you have someone that you could call upon, bring up, and, you know, just dive right in. So I'm very interested to see how much how much impact does Jared Porter have because he has been kind of an expert in finding those under the radar additions and and things of that nature rather than you know it's easy right it's easy to say sign George Springer sign Masahiro Tanaka and things like that like that doesn't take a rocket scientist but the really good executives are the ones who find the Zach Gallons of the of the world. I think when I look at it, the guy that intrigues me the most, and I said his name before, and I've said it to you a lot, is on. And I'm not saying this is like my big move, or, but one I would really be curious to see where his market's at is James Paxton, because it seems like everybody has it in their head that he's he's cooked because he had a six six four ERA in five games for the Yankees this year, where he was clearly hurt. In a year where we talked about this with Odorizzi, everyone was hurt because baseball blew the negotiations. They did not have a good ramp-up period. The season was a disaster. Everyone was hurt. I mean, before that, Paxton, in what, seven seasons or six seasons, had a career 3-5 ERA. I mean, he was basically one of the most consistent pitchers in baseball considering what you got out of him every year. You pretty much knew that Paxton was going to be this... 3.7 ERA kind of guy almost every year besides one magnificent year where he was sub three. That to me is what I look for in a number three starter, number not really a number four because of the injury risk. But I just don't think he costs that much in this market. I think he might be a guy that takes a one-year $12 million deal where you're like, okay, one-year deal, don't really care. Before we get to the questions, Joe, what are your thoughts on Paxton and, and how he's been kind of undervalued in this class? I do think he's gone a little under the radar because, like you said, he's been an incredible incredible performer uh, throughout his career. But in regards to his year with the Yankees, what's more concerning to me, and obviously you'd have to do a deep dive onto the medicals on his shoulder, but what's more concerning to me is not the fact that he stunk. It's the fact that his velocity was down. He was throwing 91, 92 miles an hour. And like you said, he was banged up. There was a shoulder thing. His agent, Scott Boris, has come out and said, you know, he's a clean bill of health. Everything's good. But, you know, age, agents will say that anyway. But they need to, you would need to do some real digging into that, into the medicals. But if, you know, your medical team comes out and says, we think this guy is going to be fine. And, you know, maybe he, maybe he throws for teams if he doesn't get the you know, the value on a one-year deal that he wants. Like, Corey, Corey Kluber is planning to throw for teams that, I believe, just after Christmas to show his health. If Paxson does something like that, and then he's throwing, call it a live BP, and you see the 94, the 95, then I think the interest perks up a bit. And I do think he will be a guy that's targeting a one-year deal. Uh, so certainly that's something that could interest you rather than going two, three years on a Tanaka or go or an Odorizzi do you go one year on a Paxton to fill that kind of veteran spot and then like I said maybe pursue a trade for you know a, a, a younger arm that's under control I wish I had a really good name for you but um, 
you know, something along the lines of can they find their own version of Zach Gallon? Like, that's going to be a name you're going to hear me say a lot. He's obviously unavailable, but he was, he's been excellent for Arizona, and that was an, a find by Jared Porter. So I'm hopeful that Porter can find a new version of Zach Gallon here and then add a veteran in the rotation that you could kind of rely on to be, like we've said, that number three, number four type starter. All right, let's get to these questions. So we got a, a lot of good ones this week. Obviously an exciting week for all Mets fans. First one from Tricky16. Any chance the Mets reach out to Theo Epstein next year for the president of baseball ops spot? Theo would become the GOAT for winning titles in Chicago, Boston, and Queens. So first off, Theo is already the GOAT. Uh, I, he I agree. He, yeah, he doesn't need Queens to become the GOAT, but that would, I guess, solidify it in, in, if there's any doubt. I, I I just don't see it. One, I don't think Theo Epstein wants to be back in baseball operations. Everything I'm hearing is Theo Epstein either A, wants to get involved in an ownership group and purchase a team, rumors the Orioles may be available, or he wants to go into the commissioner's office and may end up a future commissioner of Major League Baseball. I don't think he wants to come back into that role. And frankly, even though he has a great relationship with Jared Porter, and I maybe actually because he has a great relationship with Jared Porter, I don't think he would come to the Mets and say— That's what oh, I think. Yeah, I don't think he would come in and say, all right, well, I'm coming in to go ahead of the guy that you know I've groomed to be in this position. I think Theo would probably—if Theo does want to get back in baseball ops, I think he might even actually purposely avoid the Mets for the sake of not halting the growth of someone he not only respects but likes so much in Jared Porter. I completely agree. That's how I look at the question. He wouldn't do that to Jared Porter, um, understandably. That's just, you know, that's a tough um, that's a tough situation where, you know, a younger guy that you you groomed and he has his chance and now you're going to come in and overshadow him. I, I don't think Theo rolls like that. So I, I, I would rule out Theo Epstein and the Mets. From Thomas Davis, I understand that Cohen wants to win immediately. But what would be your long, your plan for the long-term sustained success year over year? Signing 30-year-olds to four- to five-year deals doesn't sound like the best use of resources. So I agree. It's something I said at the, at the top of the show that, you know, it's why I don't think they're looking at this and going, okay, we're going to give Bauer five years. We're going to give Rio Muto five years. We're going to give Springer five. Like, that's not how you're going to operate every year. And, and this is a different year because the Mets were – Super under budget in terms of where how Cohen operates and how the Wilpons operate. It's basically like if you, you know, <laughs> you, you owned like a, a company and somebody bought it and they just completely retooled your budget because they have more money to invest in it. That's what Cohen has exactly done where they have all of this room to to upgrade, right? And it, say your company ha was running on, like, old crappy desktops. And they're like, okay, well, you need new laptops. You need new resources. The Mets are sitting there going, okay, well, we have all this money to spend under the luxury tax. It, money does not really matter to Cohen right now. I mean, think about all the debt he took on when he bought the team. So you look at it, this is going to be a big offseason because there's so much wiggle room. They won't all be like that. Now, in, term, in terms of the sustained success, it comes down to what Sandy has done here, and that's grooming talent, draft talent. Think of all the players they have had under team control or have under team control. Like Jeff McNeil is under team control for a while. J.D. Davis is under team control for another three years. You know, Michael Conforto is somebody that is due, but the Mets have gotten many productive years out of Michael Conforto for pennies because he came up as like a freaking 22-year-old or whatever it was. So that is the answer, is that you're not buying starting players, star starting players every year. You're developing them. And I know Joe feels the same way. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's all about drafting, developing. But really what it comes down to is they, they need to find that balance of winning now while not ruining the future. Because that's what it, what it really boils down to me is that this team is – mostly ready to go right now and win so you you want to take advantage of that but thomas brings up obviously an, uh, an excellent point that you don't want to get in the business of spending big long deals for free agents who on average most of the premium free agents are around 30 years old when you're going to sign them and if you're signing them to a 
five-year deal, you're taking them into their mid-30s where you know that deal's not going to work out long-term. But I think they, they need to set a, a little bit of a baseline in, hey, we're here to really play, but also we're not going to go crazy. Like you said, they're not going to sign Springer and Bauer. But you sign one to show, look, things are different here. I, I think there is something to that. Uh, you know, sign someone that goes, all right, you know, I'm Steve Cohen. I have $15 billion. And if the right free agent is available, I'm not going to be afraid to spend on him. But ultimately, what what will keep the sustained success is, like, like we said, drafting and developing. And, you know, th- they can operate in unison. I mean, the Dodgers haven't been bad. You're not like you don't need to go into a rebuild to re to retool your farm system. You can make good picks at the end of the first round, the latter half of the first round. You just need to have a good scouting department, which the Mets do. So I think it's a matter of, you know, just doing both in unison, making sure you keep the major league team competitive year in and year out through free agency, through trades but then also nailing the draft to the point where, one, you have a constant flow of prospects that's coming through, and two, with that flow of prospects, opens up the opportunity to make trades like the White Sox did for Lance Lynn last week. They traded a prospect, Dane Dunning, who's you know around, a, he's a top 80, top 90 prospect or so in the game, whereas... The Mets wouldn't, and I compared JT Ginn from the Mets as the closest comparison. If the Mets trade JT Ginn, they'd be screwed, prospect-wise, even more than they are already. Whereas the White Sox can trade a Dane Dunning, and it's okay because they have a ton of other prospects, so they'll just keep on keep on going. So building up that core of prospects through the draft and international free agency just leads to more flexibility on the major league team. One, whether the prospects make it themselves and then they're league minimum players for for years, or two, they're they're also trade chips. Yeah, well said. Honestly, very well said. Is that you know that the Mets want to be look at like you said. There's teams like the Dodgers and the Yankees that have all this money. And at the same time, it feels like every other year we're talking, not every other year, every other month, we're talking about a young star coming up to play for them in their farm system that they drafted or they traded for uh, in a savvy move. So the next one from Ira Samet, do you agree with the thought process of not waiting for real Muto? So this one's tricky, right? Number one, the thought process absolutely makes sense. It's not something where I sit there and go, oh, Sandy's just, you know, explaining, uh, you know, why they went after McCann because deep down he probably liked other players and didn't like Real Muto. I do think there's a part of them that sat there and said, we are not going to give a catcher a five- or six-year deal for $25 million per year, at, you know, at, in a situation that we think that he, he can decline for health reasons or we don't want to spend that money at that position or a lot of different things. I do think that, you know, the rumblings might have got to the Mets and the Mets would know the Mets are the ones making the calls. I don't ever buy into these rumblings, but people said Real Muto was not entirely high on coming to New York. And if you're the Mets and if you call Real Muto's camp and they tell you, hey, here's what we're looking for, but we're also not looking to move too quick. You sit there and go, we we can't miss on this. We can't, I mean, Wilson Ramos was a disaster last year. I like Nito as a backup probably more than most, but I like Nito as a backup, right? And I mean like a, a real backup, not a platooning catcher, a guy that is your backup. So when you look at it, and Yadier Molina was never coming here. So you looked at it and go, okay, well, if McCann's ready, let's make the move because we want to spend the superstar money elsewhere anyway. So when I, I, I do agree with the process. I think that the Mets knew there wasn't a catcher out there they could trade for. They knew that, you know, quite frankly, waiting on Real Muto was an insane risk that I think they were going to drive the – I think Real Muto's camp was going to try to take the Mets for a ride – 
And Sandy was not going to get played like that. And Sandy doesn't get played like that. And I think that in the end, Real Muto and his camp ultimately played themselves because the Mets were their best ticket to getting a huge contract. Whether it was with the Mets or not, they needed the Mets involved to get the other teams to keep going higher and higher. We've heard the rumors that he wants a six-year deal at mega money. Real Muto is a great player. He's the best catcher in baseball, offensively, defensively, however you want to put it. But once again... If uh, my gut feeling is the Mets did this because they want to now go get Springer, they want to go fill out the starting rotation, they want to make a trade or two, and they needed this is the stepping stone to get all that stuff done. Catcher had to get done before you can do anything else. So ultimately, I do agree with this process. I think the process was worked out perfectly. Um, I, I certainly understand how great JT Real Muto is. There's no question he is the best offensive and defensive catcher in baseball all-around superstar. There's no question. Uh, but like you said, I don't think they wanted to go to the five, six years, 23, $25 million a year range. And they also, if they waited on him, they would have had the risk of being bent over a barrel and having to give him whatever it is he wanted because there are no other options. Like you said, There's they couldn't get a Yadier Molina. There isn't really much on the trade market unless you're a fan of Wilson Contreras. Whereas... In center field, I I think they're going all in on Springer. But if by chance they whiff on Springer, Jackie Bradley Jr.'s there. Kevin Kiermeyer is available in trade. There's other options that they could go for center field. Um, if Trevor Bauer is at the top of their radar and they whiff there, you got Odorizzi, Tanaka, Paxton, trade options. If Liam Hendricks is high on their options, you know, uh, on, on their list, and they whiff there, you know, there's... Brad Hand, there's Kirby Yates, there's other options for the bullpen. Catcher was the one position that I can't list off names that there was other options for. So they had to move because, like you said, McCann was ready to move. And if it wasn't the Mets, it probably would have been the Angels. And the Mets knew they needed catcher. And do I do do I think they were absolutely like in love with McCann? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But they knew he was clearly the second best available. And... The third best available that was actually available to them might have been someone that you would not be happy to hear that that was the Mets starting catcher. So I think that I think they execute the catching market perfectly. It's now all about where they go from here because it, it's easy to second guess McCann versus Real Muto when the other big big uh, dominoes haven't fallen yet. So if they sign a George Springer, it's all worth it. You and I aren't crazy about Trevor Bauer, but if they sign a Trevor Bauer, you know, it still was worth it because it, you know, it proved the point that they saved the money on catcher and weren't able to transition the other money to a star, a star caliber player. So I think getting McCann was essential and the, the process in which they did, I thought was incredibly sound. Yeah, it was the right, uh, the right process. That's exactly the word I was, I was looking for or thinking of is that, when you look at it, you know, it's it's a stepping stone to get everything else done. And it goes back to order of things, right, Joe? Like, if they came out and got Real Muto, everyone would have freaked out. and been like, oh, my God, the Mets got Real Muto. You know, what are they going to do now? But then the next moves might have been, you know, Real Muto, maybe Jackie Bradley. And then, and then you start to, like, slowly go down and down. With this, it's, you're ramping up. There's going to be a bigger move than McCann. And, and I still, my heart says Springer. So, you know, my gut feeling is Springer. So the order definitely played into how people reacted to it as well. And I think one last thing, term was a big deal. You know, when you're looking at it, McCann will be 34 uh, when that contract expires. And, and you feel like he can play at the level of player he has been, you know, all four years of this contract. Where Real Muto... You just worry, you know, what is year five going to look like? If you had to go to a sixth year to get it done, what is that year six going to look like for him? And he's he's a freak of nature. He's in incredible shape. He's a great player. I, I wouldn't put it past him if he, he ages better than most catchers do, but that would make him an outlier. And sports lifers and personnel, whether it's football, basketball, baseball, hockey, anything, do not like outliers. So that that is part of the process as well. Final question for today's show, and it's been a good one. It's always a quick hour. It's it's crazy how fast that hour goes. Uh, this one from Ryan. What does the Mets minor league pitching look like at the moment for the 2022 season and onward? 
I'm trying to gauge whether or not they should sign Bauer. He was trying to see what their pitching staff may look like in 2022. So, I, you know, we always keep this show in a one-year window where, you know, but this is a good question because he basically said in 2022 would it look like DeGrom, um, Syndergaard, Bauer, and Stroman with all question marks. And, and Joe, I'll let you kick this one off because I've jumped in on a lot of these questions and I know you can explain uh, guess what? All four of those guys are not going to be here in 2022. <laughs> right, of course. But as far as minor league pitching, just address the first part of the question. There is none, um, unless you know there's someone under the radar that breaks out. There is not a starting pitcher in the farm system that I look at that I say that is a person that will be in the 2022 rotation. Doesn't exist at, at where we currently stand. Um, doesn't mean they can't. Uh, draft someone this year that's on the extreme fast track. I mean, you know, Matt Harvey came up just after a year after being drafted. So, you know, you could draft the guy and get them up pretty quickly if you draft the right person. But I think this is where you need to see Jared Porter be creative. And Sandy Alderson, obviously, for that matter, is they need to find young, under-control arms that are, you know, big league ready or very close to big league ready if they are prospects. Or maybe even guys that have, you know, so-so limited success in the major leagues that you believe in the stuff and that you think that person can break out. There's no way around it. They need to get people that have years of control in this in this organization. Because like you said, you know, DeGrom's going to be here, of course. Uh, Will Syndergaard? I don't know. Maybe. Will Stroman? I don't know. Maybe. Bauer? I, I don't think so, but it's at least possible. Uh, and then you have David Peterson. So the options are incredibly limited. So it's going to be important that not only, I know Jared Porter talked about adding depth. I think it's important that they not only add depth to make it through 2021, that they add depth that can be useful pieces in 2022 as well. Yeah, and this question kind of highlights why I thought two things one if Stroman didn't take the qualifying offer I think they would have been aggressive in bringing him back and I know you felt the same way Joe I think they would have looked for a three-year deal because you have to look at this right now like you said there's nothing in the minor league system that indicates there'll be a piece in 2021 or 2022 coming up to be a part of this you have DeGrom you have Peterson you know, they're praying that they can get Mats back on track this year, but nobody has any expectations there. You have Stroman for one year, and then he's most likely gone. We'll see. I don't know. We'll see. But this is why I go back and say, if Syndergaard comes back this year and looks right, I think they are very aggressive in getting a contract with him done because, quite frankly, they need a structure in place. Like, they're, my gut feeling on the Mets is, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I don't think they're going out to make Bauer a part of the next five years. I think they're going to look at the Tanaka market, the Odorizzi market, and look for these two- to three-year guys. And then if you can get Syndergaard under contract to be back in the fold, then the rotation looks like DeGrom. For 2022, I'm speaking. DeGrom, Syndergaard, and Odorizzi or Tanaka, maybe both if we're lucky, um, you know, if Santa's good to us this year, and Peterson. And then you're looking for a fifth starter in next year's market on a one-year deal, and those guys shake loose every year. So there's a lot of variables here, quite frankly, by our answers. You can tell that. But I think the point is, in 2022, while it's a possibility neither of them are there, I think I feel pretty good that one of Stroman or Syndergaard will be back in 2022 under a new contract, and I just don't see Bauer a part of this equation. I honestly couldn't agree much more. Uh, I, I don't envision Bauer. Uh, I, I guess in theory it's possible if the, if it doesn't work out with if it doesn't work out with Springer, I do think they'll pivot to Bauer. That I will say. So if if they whiff on Springer, say Toronto just blows the doors in and says we'll go six years, one fifty five or whatever, you know maybe maybe that entices him to not sign with the Mets. But and then I think they may pivot to Bauer. But otherwise, I think like you said. Maybe they're pursuing a guy like a Tanaka or Odorizzi two-year type deal. So at least for 2022, they have they have options, and that, and that's what they need. They need guys that can be around in 2022. So no, Joe, I thought that was a that was a good I, question. I want to say something too because we have a lot of new listeners lately. They're awesome. 
a lot of people might be sitting here and going, why are these guys so anti-signing the Cy Young winner from the National League? And once again, if they sign him, I'm not going to get on here and be upset or yell about it. Or I, I root for the signing to work out great for our New York Mets. But I just want to clarify a little bit why Bauer scares me in that five-year mega money kind of deal. I don't care that he's going to turn 30 soon in January. I don't care about that. I just have a feeling that this was a big-time outlier season for Trevor Bauer, where this year he pitched like a guy that should make $30 million a year in the major leagues. And quite frankly, he's probably asking for something close to that. And I don't blame him. Go get your money. I don't blame him. One seven three ERA in the classic, well-known, shortened MLB season where he made 11 starts. The year before that, he had a 3.79 ERA in 24 starts for Cleveland. He got traded to the Reds that year, made 10 starts for the Reds, and had a 6.71 ERA. He was terrible for the Reds after being traded there. The year before that, very good season. Kind of figured it out in Cleveland in 28 starts. 2.21 ERA. Okay, so you're looking at that sample size. You have, in the shortened year, a Cy Young season. The year before that, very up and down, extremely rocky. The year before that, very good. Before that, 419 ERA, 426 ERA, 455 ERA. Which Who's the real Trevor Bauer? I don't know, and that's why I'm not the one sitting there deciding if I'm going to pay Trevor Bauer 25 to $30 million over the next five years as he gets older. What I do know is, it's not a risk I'm willing to take if I'm making that decision when there are other superstar options out there like George Springer. And I feel good about the middle tier pitching market to go get one of the guys we keep talking about. So it's not I hate Trevor Bauer. It's not I don't want the Mets to get him because, it, you know, I would hate it or freak out. It's that I think the real Trevor Bauer is probably around a 3.5, 3.7 ERA kind of guy. And I'm just not paying that kind of money in the next five years for that kind of player. Yeah, I mean, I think I what I when I look at Trevor Bauer, I say, like you said, two, two of the last three years, let's call it, you know, half a season this year, and then 2018, obviously tremendous. 2019, you know, you could say the trade messed with him a bit, and you know, his overall ERA of 4.48. May not have been as high if he wasn't traded midseason. So, you know, that's that's a factor. But And it's a distinct possibility that Trevor Bauer has figured something out and he's going to be a very good pitcher going forward. I'm not ruling that out at all. Like, And if the Mets sign him, that's what I'm going to come on and say I'm hoping for. I'm going to hope that 2018 and 2020 is closer to what Trevor Bauer is going to be for the next few years and not everything before that. But... I, I think you see a lot of people just ignoring before 2018 and acting like it doesn't exist, but it does. It, it, it is a factor. I don't think you can just rule out someone's entire career. And Bauer has been good, not great. And he's going to get paid like great. And to me, the issue is not necessarily signing Trevor Bauer per se. It's it's just the risk that's involved. And if I, if I am the Mets and I'm in charge of the Mets, I'm looking to make the safest major investment that I can. And to me, the safest big investment is George Springer. I think I know exactly what I'm getting from George Springer. I don't have any questions, issues. Not, I mean, things could happen, but from everything you look at, from the regular just baseline statistics to the underlying statistics, there's nothing about George Springer that tells me a five-year deal for him won't work out well for the Mets. Trevor Bauer, I just think there's a wide range of outcomes, and yes, the need at pitching is extreme. There, uh, that's obvious, but the wide range of possible outcomes is what scares the daylights out of me when you're talking, let's call it $25 million a year or something in that neighborhood, maybe a little more. But if you're talking that type of money, that that scares me that I could be taking a risk that I'm saying a guy that's going to post an ERA in the fours. That's... That would be a disaster. But, you know, you also have a chance that maybe he really did figure something out and he's going to be more of a low threes, high twos arm. And if that's the case, then that's a great contract. But 
and it's a risk that like you said i'm not exactly willing to take um and you know he's also an enigma off the field where he rubs some people the wrong way i don't think you know i personally have no issue with it it doesn't bother me but i'm also very forward thinking like i want bat flips i want crazy celebrations like i want more fun in the game i don't have that old school you know respect the game like mindset like that that's just not for me so like I don't have a problem with Trevor Bauer generally speaking but you know he's he's done some things online that aren't great and you know the, he, he's not exactly a guy that the whole world loves so you know that that's a factor too you're making a you know 125 140 million dollar investment in a guy and like what if he clashes with half the people in the clubhouse for some reason um there there's no history of him having issues with teammates but you could see people, you know, other players have liked tweets that are anti-Trevor Bauer. So you just have, you have wonders what the general thought throughout baseball is of him off the field. But yeah, it's just a big risk. And I don't think the Mets are in a position in the first year under Steve Cohen. And let's be honest, Sandy Olison's kind of a risk-averse guy by nature. So I, I just don't know how it fits necessarily uh, long-term and how how the risk matches up but like you said if they sign trevor bauer we're gonna come on this podcast and we're gonna say you know nice things and how we hope the contract works out but you know i'm not here to just tell you everything the mets and sandy allerson do is great that is not that's just not in my blood if i think something's not right or you know if i think there's high risk i'm gonna mention it um, you know, I'm not a complete homer, but if they do something good, I'm going to say it too. Fair enough. I mean, that. listen, we're here to root for the Mets, but we're also here to analyze things. I mean, that's the, that's part of the show. So, um, and, and people get to analyze us, and that's why we do the review of the week. So, Joe, closing thoughts and the review of the week for episode number 20. I'll hit the review of the week first, which... I can't thank you people enough. Uh, you know, I, I check these reviews probably more than I should, to be to, to be totally transparent. Um, but I, I love reading everything you guys write. And, you know, I appreciate seeing all the five stars that we're getting. And, you know, it's it's it, it's very good to read. But what the one I want to highlight this week is from Johnny Small. He said, as a mailman from upstate New York, this podcast is the only one I can't wait for every week. Both Joe and Connor give great information and opinions on the Mets. Definitely one of the best, if not the best, Mets podcast around. Love getting my Mets news each week from these guys. Makes my workday so much better when the new episode comes out each week. I love that. And all I can do is imagine Johnny in, like, vintage mailman gear. Like, riding around and maybe, I don't even know, do they have, like, uh, not car play, but, like, the USB or whatever plugs and he blasts that. So Mets through his uh, mail route. And I, I could just envision that, but no, I, I appreciate Johnny's review obviously. And you know, we're getting a ton of them. So like I, and I read every single one and every week we'll read one. And you know, if they keep coming, maybe some weeks we'll read two. It'll just kind of see how it goes. But as far as closing thoughts go, Scott Boris got to speak. Uh, I mean, it's now, this is always an event. <laughs> 20, 30, 20, 30 minutes ago, a couple notes he said. Scott Boris on the Mets. In the area of catching, they didn't let anybody else eat their lunch. They went out and got a Big Mac. Okay? And then on Steve Cohen, it's nice to have an ownership with big apples. And I, I guess I'll leave that there. <laughs> Yeah, you know what? <laughs> I mean, he's right. We agree. Uh, I know he's probably excited because he represents a, a guy named Michael Conforto. Ever hear of him? And he probably hopes that Michael Conforto and, and many future Confortos will be quite wealthy uh, thanks to him and the New York Mets. So, ooh, ooh I got one more. I got one more, please, actually. Please, please. Yeah, he also said, because there, there was a joke a year or two ago where he, he mentioned the Hamburglar involved with the Mets in some sense and he said that in choosing their GM they didn't get the Hamburglar but they got a porterhouse dun dun 
<laughs> my goodness, man. I, you know, I get, he, he's at the point where it's like try hard, but I, I still read every single one. Yeah, every no. single one. Bo- Bor- Boris is a, is a heat magnet for sure. But no, all in all, I think this was a great episode. Um, appreciate all the questions, all the reviews, uh, the support for this podcast. It, it truly means a lot to me. And, you know, I, I think I could speak for Connor. That means a ton for him too, uh, to him too. And, you know, we're, we're not done. I mean, we're going to keep growing. We're going to keep doing this. And, you know, we want to hear from you. Tell us what you want to hear about. Uh, we want feedback. Anything that can make this podcast more enjoyable, spread further, uh, is, is what we want. And, you know, in the coming weeks, we're going to have some guests on, too. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm working some channels where, you know, we could hopefully get some scouting personnel on. Maybe we could get some pro- some more prospects. Like we had Jake Mangum on a couple weeks back. And, you know, we'll work. We'll have some beat writers on. You know, we'll, we'll mix it up a bit. But I, I'm, I'm really excited with, you know, where we've come in now 20 episodes. And, you know, I, I can't wait to see like a year from now where we're at. It's going to be crazy. I agree. It's been awesome. It, it's crazy. We're 20 episodes in already. Um, you know, we're going to get back to having people on. I think that, you know, the reason being is just us right now is we can do over an hour and Joe can answer anything about the farm system or anything going on in the off season. And, you know, I, I love to give my input and I think we're at a stage where, you know, if you listen to the emergency podcast last weekend, like we were boom, ready to go. Like when all the news came out. So, uh, you know, exciting about, it was exciting with Porter being hired, exciting with McCann signing, and we're going to get a lot more of those news, those types of episodes, I think, over the next month. And we're excited to do it. So hope you enjoyed this one. Stick with us, and we'll be back next week. Hey, it's John. You want to look and feel your very best? Visit the team at Cool Contours. They are the number one cool sculpting provider in Virginia. Their award-winning team of certified cool sculpting elite and cool tone specialists work with you to create a fully customized treatment plan to achieve your dream body. Learn more at cool-contours.com. That's cool-contours.com. As ranked by Allergen in June 2021, cool sculpting elite's FDA clear to visible fat bulges in nine areas of the body. Some common side effects include temporary numbness, discomfort, and swelling.